wrong in this situation. He took a picture in the back. He got beamed for crying out loud. We used heart attack. Managers on a major league baseball team don't make decisions. Credibility in this situation is worse than losing your job. Was it over when the Chinese bomb threw harder? The castration of the major league baseball managers. We know it. Ask me about my winner. What's going on, everybody? Another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, you, you see the NFL and as big of a juggernaut as it's built itself. And there is. And you, you could think of world football, world soccer as it exists. It probably makes a ton of money, especially in other countries. But in the United States of America, there is no more profitable sport than that of the National Football League. And with money comes power. And you're actually seeing the NFL take a stand and flex its muscles for the amount of power that it has over not just the world of sports, but human beings as we exist and see them here in this country. The NFL making it clear, saying, listen, we're not going to do any more daily testing. We're not going to distinguish between vaccinated and unvaccinated players. And there's no other reason that this is done other than the fact that the NFL wants to ensure that its billion-dollar product continues to be profitable. There's nothing that's going to get in the way of the National Football League continuing to make the billions and billions of dollars that it does. And if there's anything close to it, you could call it the coronavirus, the Omicron variant, whatever you want to throw the NFL's way, the NFL is saying, screw you, we're going to make sure that our league runs through this. There's not going to be any risk that any vaccinated or unvaccinated players are testing positive for the coronavirus without symptoms. Now, listen, I'm, I'm not going to get political because I don't care about the political element of this, vaccinated, unvaccinated. Whatever you want to do has, has nothing to do with the topic at hand, the issue at hand, what it is that we're talking about right now. It's the fact that the NFL, the National Football League, is flexing the power that it has to make sure that there is nothing that's going to get in the way of its ability to make money. And is that a good thing? Well, it's a good thing for the National Football League. It's a good thing for the millions and millions of NFL fans that exist and are out there. So for all those reasons, you, know, you like football, you should be happy that the National Football League is not going to push this thing any further. That, that it, the NFL is going to allow for just about nothing to get in its way over anything that's going to interfere with its games. And there's a difference. Listen, we talk about health and safety protocols. Well, you, know, you still got states, you still got cities that are distinguishing very much between those that are vaccinated and those that are unvaccinated. And once again, this show is not for that debate. This show is just pointing out the obvious, that the NFL has an ability to do more than most 
entities that exist in this country right now. And the reason? Because they bring in so much more money. So whatever little entity that you say, hey, I can't, uh, I, I can't force testing or not testing or saying, hey, uh, I'm going to be more conservative and say I'm not going to have any testing to make sure that my employees show up at my business and my business prospers. You're not allowed to do that. But the National Football League, because of the billions and billions of dollars that it generates, is allowed to. So once again, staying off the political elements of this, the NFL is more powerful than you. The NFL is more powerful than the majority of businesses that are out there. Because the NFL can say, hey, there's going to be no distinguishment between players that are vaccinated and unvaccinated. And in all honesty, if any of them have the coronavirus and are passing it on to others, even you know, in, in the majority of the cases where symptoms are very mild, what player... In this situation, they're going to say, hey, you know what, I, I think I might have some symptoms. The NFL has already opened the door for players that have symptoms to just say, hey, unless I admit that I have symptoms, I'm playing on Sunday. I'm playing on Saturday. And it's best for the NFL. But once again, whatever is the best for the NFL doesn't mean it's the best for everybody involved. And you hope this doesn't blow up in the league's face. You understand 100% unequivocally the reason that the National Football League has done this. Hey, they don't want to risk any of their star players being out in these big games. They know that attendance, especially for those watching on television, is going to be at an all-time high in the playoffs. People are going to be glued to their television sets Friday, I'm sorry, Saturday afternoon and Saturday night and Sunday afternoon and Sunday night. They can't wait to watch these games. And God forbid there's anything that gets in the way of seeing these teams be able to play their best players. Anything to water that down is going to get in the way of the pockets of the National Football League. And once again, the NFL is flexing, saying, hey, because of the billions and billions of dollars that we bring in each year, the profitability of the NFL and you can make an argument that is more profitable than any sport in the world, let alone just this country. Money talks. You want something to change? You want to go away from the norm? Bring in the amount of money that the National Football League brings in, and you can do what you want. Number two, I'm, I'm bringing this up because a, a lot of Giants fans, a handful of Giants fans that I know have have come to me, have spoken to me, and they, 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 they want to know if they're really headed in the right direction. Of course, the announcement yesterday that the Giants have hired Joe Shane, the assistant general manager of the Buffalo Bills as their new general manager. And I think it constitutes a major change in the operations of the football giant. Not just the simple bringing in of a new general manager. Now listen, anytime somebody else is becoming the face of your franchise, the ability and I think the autonomy that's involved in running the franchise it's going to be a dawn of a new era there's always going to be the optimistic approach of hey things are going to change things are going to go for the better hey this person that we brought in is going to lead us to the promised land couple things on the Giants it stands out that this is the first time the New York Giants 
are shying away from a descendant of George Young since he took over the franchise as general manager in 1979. That means the last 43 years, the New York football giants have been run by George Young and George Young's assistants and descendants. From George Young to Ernie Accorsi, Ernie Accorsi to Jerry Reese, Jerry Reese to Dave Gettleman. Of course, Dave Gettleman had you know a little bit of a break in his time with the Giants, but the bottom line is they all came from the same the same group led by George Young. And I want to jump into the DeLorean, crack it up to 88 miles an hour, and go back to 1979 because I think there's a lot of Giants fans, particularly some of the Giants fans that I've spoken with, that weren't around when George Young took over the Giants. They weren't around when the Giants were in need, in such a need of a change from the direction of their franchise and, and the way it was going. And you think of that time because prior to that, the Giants hadn't won themselves a Super Bowl. They hadn't really represented themselves very well in the NFL in the Super Bowl era. John McVay, the old uh, grandfather of Rams head football coach, Sean McVay was the head coach of the Giants, the 1978 Giants that happened to be 6-10 and 10 that season. Now, what stands out about that time is, once again, there was no 86, there was no 1990, there was no 2007, there was no 2011. This was a very bad Giants franchise. A franchise over the course of the decade of the 1970s went 9-5 in 1970, 8-6 and six in 1972, and after that, failed to register a winning season through the rest of the decade, all the way through 1980. And it wasn't until 1981 when the Giants finished 9-7 and seven under Rake Perkins, a down season, a 4-5 and five season, and a strike-shortened season of 1982, and then Bill Parcells comes in in 1983. The Giants, at the time, going back to the late 70s, were an extremely proud franchise. A proud franchise that had kind of fallen on its face. Prior to the Super Bowl era, the Giants were a fixture in the NFL championship game. Getting there and losing in 61, 62, and 63. The same in 58 and 59. Won the championship in 56. Lost the championship before that in 46, 44, 41, 39, 1 in 38. Made it in 35, one in 34, made it in 33, won it in 27. So the Giants, who had been a franchise in the NFL since 1925, were a very proud franchise up until the Super Bowl era. Now their time in the 1960s, though, they were kind of up and down. Never made it to the playoffs. In fact, didn't make it to the playoffs in the Super Bowl era until 1981. But similarly to the Giants and the way that they're going right now, they were, really for the decade of the 1970s, one of the doormats of the National Football League. Almost an embarrassment to watch a game on a week-in and week-out basis. And I say that as it applies to right now, because if you think of the millions and millions of NFL football fans that do not root for the New York Giants, you may have a favorite team from anywhere, whether you're relocated, whether you just, like me, chose a team out of a hat, um, you know, in fifth grade, 
the millions and millions of football fans on the East Coast in the New York metro area that do not root for the Giants are forced to watch football and the Giants on a week-in and week-out basis. You want to watch football? The Giants game is always going to be on. And in addition to the Giants fans who are disgusted, are frustrated, are angry over everything that they've seen over the last four-plus seasons, the fans that root for the other teams are kind of laughing at the Giants because they're like, this is what we're going to see week-in and week-out. Now, what the Giants did by hiring George Young, and I don't know if they knew it at the time. I don't know if they knew that the hiring of George Young was going to lead this team on to bigger and better things. Like I said, a 43-year-old run that is going to end with Joe Shane taking over as a general manager of the Giants, the overall body of work, it's nothing to be ashamed of. Four Super Bowls, getting to a fifth, Odds are, if you're a Giants fan of this generation, you've gotten to see multiple Super Bowls, and a lot of us have seen all four of them. This is finally a time for a change. And if you watched, if you're old enough to remember the decade of the 1970s and how bad the Giants were over the course of time there, Alex Webster's years, prior to that, Ali Sherman towards the end. Now, Ali Sherman you know, led the team to three championship games. But it was kind of the end of Ali Sherman's time which started the bad Giants. Pretty similar to you say with Tom Coughlin, right? Tom Coughlin led the Giants to two Super Bowls. He deserves his day in a ring of honor at uh, MetLife Stadium. He should be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, which I, I believe he's going to have his day. One of the greatest football coaches that the Giants ever had. And I say similar to Ali Sherman, because with the greats of Tom Coughlin, you also saw the beginning of the bottom falling out of this franchise. And you watched the Giants after their last Super Bowl victory in 2011. A 9-7 season where they didn't make the playoffs. A 7-9 and and back-to-back 6-10 seasons where they didn't make the playoffs. And the Giants made which was a tough move made by ownership, saying, you know what, we're going to move on from the coach. You know, Tom Coughlin's a hard ass. He's a tough individual. He wants to be out there. This wasn't Bill Parcells citing uh, medical issues to walk away. This is a guy that wanted to be there. And the Giants made the decision to move on since there. It's been the circus. Ben McAdoo and the decision between him and Jerry Reese to sit Eli Manning and how that blew up in their face, resulting in both of those men losing their jobs. Two years under Pat Shermer, two years under Joe Judge. And the Giants over the past five years have been, and I'm going to say it, the worst team in the National Football League. Forget about the Browns. The Browns made it to the playoffs, right? The Jets, all right, maybe they're kind of on the same ground. The Jaguars got a conference championship game in the last, what, five years, right? So who has been worse in the NFL than the New York Giants? They've hit the level. They've hit a time where they've become absolutely disgraceful. And it's a time where there's a need for change. And the Giants did a good, uh, I think, a smart thing by going outside of the organization. And I guess if your question is, hey, are they in good hands with Joe Shane? The answer I have is I don't know. I think he comes 
recommended. I think he comes well-respected. If you follow the Buffalo Bills franchise over the past five or so years, it's a team on the rise. But it's a team that has some strengths that the Giants certainly don't have right now. So I would think Joe Shane as the general manager, yes, he's going to hire his coach. And fans love, oh man, they can't wait to know who their coach is. They can't wait to know the last name of their head coach so they can ridicule and insult him the entire time he's there. I'll lay that to rest. I'm not going to attack that today. That's for many other days in the past and many other days in the future. But, you know, the importance is what, if you're looking at what, what should the Giants do, they have to identify themselves. The old school Giants had a solid quarterback that put themselves in the best position to win and a dynamic running game and a very intense and physical defense. You certainly haven't seen that over the last five years with the Giants. The Giants had their year in 2016 when they went 11-5. and They've had eight of the last nine seasons have been losing seasons. The last five, they've been the worst team in the NFL. What I would be excited for if I was the New York football Giants fan would be the autonomy that the new general manager is going to have. His ability to reshape the organization, his ability to change the direction and basically constitute the New York Giants as a franchise the exact way that he wants it. To put a coach that probably is on the same page as him. You know, we've heard discussions about the changes in the NFL head coaches. They're finding more yes men, more men that are willing to work collaboratively, collaboratively with the front office as opposed to just being, hey, Bill Parcells, I'm the freaking boss. You're going to do what I say. You're seeing a lot of organizations do that. I think the Giants are going to follow a similar model. The question is, can the Giants get everything in there in regards to what they want to be identified as? And then how do you get the players to do that? Daniel Jones, it's going to be a question about him until he's not the quarterback of the Giants anymore. Is he the guy? Can they get to the playoffs and win? Can they ultimately win a Super Bowl with Daniel Jones as their quarterback? Now, you may have an answer. It may be yes. It may be no. Probably no. I don't think it's really identified yet until the Giants identify what type of football team they want to be. Now, Daniel Jones makes mistakes with the football. He fumbles. Um, You know, kind of had a Tiki Barber problem earlier in his career. Maybe Tom Coughlin could somehow talk him into being able to hold the football better like he did for Tiki. But... You think of the Giants and what they want to identify themselves as. Certainly, they don't want to make mistakes. Certainly, they don't want to have a quarterback that says turnover prone as Daniel Jones is. And the question is, can he improve? You know, Josh Allen's taken a lot of shit, especially in his first two years of his career. And he's kind of thrown a lot towards the naysayers by basically becoming everything everybody thought he could be back when he was quarterbacking over in Wyoming. He's become a great quarterback. He's changed the perception of a lot in the national media. Now, Daniel Jones was hurt at the end of last season, so some valuable time that you could have looked at and watched this guy play and seen, hey, is he ready to take that next step? I don't know. And I think a lot. there's going to be a lot of breaking down. There's going to be a lot of players that are on this roster. 
If I'm Joe Shane, I'm getting, I'm doing a profile on every single player that is currently on the roster or on the practice squad, and I'm making a decision yes or no. And if my decision's no on this player for the future, I'm getting them the hell off my team. And I, I would be willing to sacrifice the 2022 NFL season, maybe bottom out, but just get all the players that you don't think are part of the solution off your team. Draft well. Look to get younger. But most importantly, identify what type of football team you're supposed to be. Now, listen, I think there's a lot that's been spoken about what the Giants' way has been. And I think it's assumed that that's the way it should be. Play good defense, rush the passer, and have a really good running game. It won the Giants four Super Bowls. But is it necessarily the way of the future? How many teams are focusing just on defense and running a football? You look at the Titans, which we'll talk about you know, the quick playoff previews. They rely a lot on the running game. They rely a lot on their defense. In fact, their defense was terrible last year. Has improved a lot this year under Mike Vrabel. Can the Giants see themselves winning with that formula, or are they going to succumb to what a lot of other teams have and say, listen, we're going to need to bludgeon you. We're going to need to outscore you. We're going to need the ability to throw the ball downfield. We're going to need a quarterback that could hit multiple wide receivers. All things that you really haven't seen from Daniel Jones at this level of his career. So that's going to be the biggest question of potential change that could happen for the Giants as they're going forward. Do you need do you look at Daniel Jones as the future? Maybe Russell Wilson? You know, Jimmy Garoppolo I don't think is that that type of quarterback that by himself makes you better. I don't think he's a large or a uh, I think he's probably a marginable upgrade over Daniel Jones at this point. But there's Aaron Rodgers. Like I said there's Russell Wilson. There's not real big quarterbacks coming in a draft this year. And you want to think of some quarterbacks that are on other teams, whether it's a Derek Carr. Yeah, that, that's a that's somebody that with the right pieces could could end up leading you to the promised land. But yeah, the question is, do the Giants want to convert into what a lot of t- other teams have and won with over the last several years? Or do they want to be the ground and pound with a good defense, Giants, that won themselves four Super Bowls in, you know, from 1986 to 2011. I don't know. The question is, you know, you, you're not guaranteeing yourself on the other side that you're going to win. And I think a lot of fans will say, hey, we want to be the old school Giants. We want to be this team. I was in the playoffs every single year. Well, I mean, if you want to do that, you got to start by getting yourself a Lawrence Taylor. You know, where's the next LT? A couple, a couple big defensive ends and edge rushers and tackles and a NFL draft this year. You find somebody like that that could change a game like LT. I think single-handedly, if you go back to the Giants and their uh, their resurgence from the 1970s into the 80s, and of course it culminates with the Super Bowl in 1986. But you get yourself a player like Lawrence Taylor, and all of a sudden. The credibility of that organization changed. LT making his debut in the NFL in 1981 all of a sudden changed the perception of other teams going up against the Giants from a defensive standpoint. Now the wins didn't come right away 
And I, I think it's proof that one defensive player cannot turn you from a losing team to a winning team. But what it did was it gave the Giants some credibility. 81, they go out there and they win nine games, the first winning season they had since 1972. You know, Ray Perkins' first year. They have a losing season in 82. They make the change from Perkins to Parcells in 83. They went 3-12-1. And, and then after that, they were, they were a solid team. You know, 87 season, they had some injuries and just kind of a, a weird season with the strike and everything. But outside of that, Parcells, the rest of his time there, 10 and 6, I'm sorry, 9 and 7, 10 and 6, 14 and 2, 6 and 9, then 10 and 6, 12 and 4, 13 and 3 with two Super Bowl championships. And he took a player like Lawrence Taylor and he had built your team around him and then built the defense around him. That's going to be a question. Do you want to do that? If you're the Giants moving forward, is the general manager a good hire? Listen, you have to give him the autonomy to do his job. Um, if he's come in and he realizes there's a bunch of crap in his organization, whether it's the front office, whether it's the players on the field, and he wants to strip it down and get rid of um, a lot of what hasn't worked, he's got the right to do that. But if he does that, that's going to be like the Houston Astros in 2011 and 2012, when they were a bad team, one of the worst teams in baseball history. And they built some good young players, won themselves a World Series in 2017, could have easily won another one in 2019 as it came down to the seventh game against the Washington Nationals. If the Giants get themselves back together, nobody's going to point back to 2022 and wonder why the Giants were 1-15. So wild card weekend's over. And we're ready into the divisional round. You obviously got the two teams that had first round buys with a chance to play on Saturday home field games, and probably two teams that aren't getting enough credit for the seasons that they've had. The Titans, and I've said before, they're, they're not going to be very well respected. They're not the traditional NFL team. They're not led by an offensive-minded head coach. They're led kind of by what, you know, the type of coach that the Giants would have liked to have in the 80s, 90s, and the first decade of the 2000s. A defensive-minded, hard-nosed coach that isn't going to take shit from anybody. That's Mike Bra Mike Vrabel. He's done a great job with Tennessee. You can make a case he could probably be the coach of the year in the NFL. Playing the last half of the season without Derrick Henry. Derrick Henry's back on the field today. And the Titans got themselves a nice home playoff game against a team that's been the darlings of the AFC this year. Joe Burrow and the Cincinnati Bengals. Joe Burrow, Zach Taylor offensive-minded coach and quarterback are going to fling the ball down the field. They're going to play basically pass action off of their throwing game to try to run the ball with Joe Mixon. Now the Titans got a strong defensive four. And if you watch the Titans over the last couple of years, there's a, lot, there's a mirror image of the Titans two years ago in the Cincinnati Bengals this year. The Titans two years ago had a hard-nosed team a team that wasn't given any credit or any respect. They went into New England and won a wild card game. Then they took that and they went into Baltimore and they beat Baltimore. And I, I, I look at Cincinnati and I think of Cincinnati as Tennessee two years ago going to Baltimore as they get set to go to Tennessee. This is a big opportunity for the Bengals. You, you heard me on my last show talk about house money. 
And it, you know, is that a, is that such a big thing? Well, you know what? If you're in a place where you don't expect to be, well, yeah, you get to a certain point where everything you get is a bonus. Are the Bengals going to fire their coach if they lose this game today? No. Are they going to change quarterbacks? No. The in fact, the Bengals will probably be better off if they lost this game. Yes, the expectations will raise for next year, but with that will come a victory today and expectations which may be insurmountable like they were for the Titans in 2020. They were expected to take a next step. They made it to the AFC Championship game. The next step was, hey, Super Bowl or bust. Bengals will have that same type of target on their back if they do beat the Titans. Can they do it? Absolutely. They have a strong offense. I think the quarterback who can make mistakes, but, you know, it's so can Tennessee's. You know, Ryan Tannehill is not looked at as one of the elite passers in the NFL and probably part of the reason why there's a lot of ridicule towards the Titans and, you know, the national football fan can't wait for them to get eliminated. But Derrick Henry, I think, is going to be a major focal point in this game. I don't think he would be activated if he wasn't uh, ready to be unleashed full strength. So I think that imposes a problem for Cincinnati's defense. Having Julio Jones and A.J. Brown on the side, um, Ryan Tannehill, knowing that, hey, hand the ball to Derrick Henry, don't make any mistakes. It's a good offensive formula. Now the key, I think, is going to be Tennessee's pass rush. If they're willing to get in, if they're able to get in and put some pressure on Joe Burrow, you know Joe Burrow's going to release the ball quick, but there's going to be times if, if coverage isn't what it is. Now you expect the front four of the Tennessee to be able to rush the passer. And if they do that, that's going to open up the back seven to basically cover the receivers, double-team Jamar Chase, and have players all over the place making it tough for receivers to run their routes. And if that's the case, that's going to result in Joe Burrow holding on to the ball longer. If that's the case, then the front four should be able to get some pressure in and maybe force Burrow into some mistakes. And I think the key to me, yes, Derrick Henry is up there as kind of a 1A, but 1B or 1 is the Tennessee pass rush. If they could get in there and give Joe Burrow a hard time, they're going to make it they're going to force him into mistakes. And I think Tennessee should win this game. Would I be shocked if they lost? No. Because I think Cincinnati is a good football team. But I look at the Titans, and this is a game they should win. If they lose, I will tell you this. Anything that they've done over the course of the regular season, all of a sudden is not validated. All of a sudden, we're backing away from validation when we're talking about the Titans run through the gauntlet and the victories against Buffalo and Kansas City and beating the Rams and beating the Colts twice and beating New Orleans. All of those victories over the course of the regular season are for naught. They got themselves a home playoff game after a first-round bye. If they can't advance past this round, well, you look at the season and you say, hey, it's kind of a disappointment. Speaking of disappointment, the Green Bay Packers, Aaron Rodgers, all the drama that's put aside. Now, he should be happy. He doesn't have to worry about being tested unless he's going to admit to feeling any symptoms of the coronavirus again, which odds are he probably won't get it again. But, you know, Aaron Rodgers knows he's going to be able to play football for the next three, four weeks. The expectation is that they're supposed to beat the San Francisco 49ers. The expectation is 
is that the Green Bay Packers, who have had a hard time beating the 49ers, are just 7-6 and six in their last 13 home playoff games. The expectations are that this is supposed to culminate with Aaron Rodgers getting the team to the next level. The number one team in the NFC, the team with the first round bye, the team with home field advantage throughout the playoffs. And guess what? They're expected to win. Now, a lot of people like the 49ers, and, I, and, I, and I've, I've spoken about them over the last couple of years. There are very few teams that get such national respect for, from fans that are not fans of that individual team than the San Francisco 49ers. Other teams may get it as underdogs. Like a lot of, a lot of uh, fans are gravitating towards the Cincinnati Bengals because they haven't done very much in the playoffs. Jacksonville Jaguars, when they made it to the AFC Championship game, got a lot of national fans. The Titans, the same thing when they made the championship game a couple years ago in the AFC. Just because they hadn't been there. But the team that the casual, and maybe not casual, maybe good football fan, but just don't not, not, no interest in the 49ers one way or the other, they continue to root for them. And, and I think it's kind of interesting. Now, listen, they got a very good defense. Nick Bosa playing is certainly going to make a difference for them on the defensive side of the ball. Fred Warner being back and healthy. Uh, I think the 49ers are going to be able to put their best foot forward. Now, defensively, you're going to force Aaron Rodgers, who's thrown four interceptions all year, you're going to force him into a pick or two. If the 49ers could do that, I like their chances. But listen, house money. I don't know if the 49ers are necessarily playing with house money. You know, they've been a relevant team for the last handful of seasons. Even going back to the Jim Harbaugh, Colin Kaepernick days. You know, they've been a well-run franchise. Yeah, sure, they've had some bad seasons, but they've been fairly consistent as far as their expectations. At some point, you know, you're waiting for the 80s 49ers to come back. You're waiting for the Joe Montana, Bill Walsh, unbeatable George Seifert 49ers to come back and it hasn't quite gotten there yet. And yes, they have to play their playoff games on the road. I get that. Now, they got a chance to give a knockout blow to Aaron Rodgers maybe ending his time in Green Bay, maybe not. That's for another discussion. I don't feel like talking about that today. But the 49ers got a chance. If they could make things tough for Aaron Rodgers and I think the majority of us will be glued to our television sets watching the the game in Lambeau Field. Green Bay is supposed to win. Are they going to? And if they don't, is it the last game for Aaron Rodgers? Okay. Now, how far are the Packers expecting to go? Because I think the Packers are looking at this as Super Bowl or bust. If they're lucky enough to beat the 49ers this week, next week they play the winner of the Rams and, of, and of course, uh, Tampa Bay they're at home against Tampa Bay, if they're at home against the Rams, think about the Rams. They got a chance to, if they win and the Packers win, they play next week in Lambeau Field knowing that if they win that game, all of a sudden they're home for the Super Bowl. I think it's a lot to talk about as we get closer to it. And obviously not here to predict any games. You know, but you look at Green Bay, they're getting, you know, offensive, their offensive tackle back. They're getting a couple defensive players back. You know, Valdez Scantling's probably not going to play. But you, you look at their talent. They're supposed to win this week. And I don't mean to knock the San Francisco 49ers. I think they got, a, they got a great football team. They could win any week. They could get to the Super Bowl. I don't have any issue with that. 
Green Bay is supposed to win. Similar to Tennessee. You're looking at two teams sitting there with the top seeds in their respective conferences. Earn themselves a first-round bye. Earn themselves the ability to play all their home games within conference until the Super Bowl. Both teams are expected to win. On the other side, I think of Tampa Bay and Los Angeles. That's going to be probably the most intriguing game of the week. Tom Brady's got a chance to take his team to the championship game again. The Rams with Matt Stafford. Is it a disappointment if they lose? Remember, they went to the Super Bowl with Jared Goff. They traded Jared Goff and some picks for Matt Stafford. Well, you're supposed to get to the Super Bowl, right? Year one? Yeah, I think year one. I think there's more pressure on the Rams than there is for Tampa Bay. Could this be the last game for Tom Brady in Tampa Bay? Could this be the last game for Tom Brady altogether? Who knows? And then, of course, you got the Bills and the Chiefs. And it's probably going to be the funnest game of the week. Two high-power offenses, two quarterbacks that are coming off of a game where they threw five touchdowns and no interceptions. Ah, things are some good football coming ahead. Hey, real quick, big thanks out to Sean Foreman and the whole team over at sportsreference.com. Uh, sent me this book. The Negro Leagues are major leagues. And it's a, a great job that the entire group has done over there. And I know there's a lot of other people that were involved in it, but let me give some credit. Scott Bush, Aaron Dorowski, Caitlin Moyer, Jacob Permarenk have, have done really, really good work putting the Negro Leagues and their statistics the best way that we can and put them and compile them with the Major League Baseball that we've seen over the course of the last 150 years. We know about the bullshit in regards to racism and holding the holding back of the colored player, which was disgusting. It was obviously done uh, you know, for all people of color, but obviously it was very impactful in the world of baseball. And listen, I don't think you're going to be able to restore a lot of the wrong that was done, but this is a great step. We get a chance to hear more stories and do more research to honor some of the greater players in the history of the Negro Leagues as we acknowledge that league being exactly what it is. Equal to Major League Baseball. Equal to the American and National Leagues. Equal to any form of professional baseball that's been out there before. There's everyone in the Negro Leagues from 1920 to 1948. You got the National League, you got the American League, you got the National Association, who I still believe is a major league, because you don't have the National League, you don't have Major League Baseball if it isn't for the emergence of the National Association from nineteen, from sorry, from eighteen seventy one, eighteen seventy five, the American Association, which was very prominent in the eighteen eighties, the Players League of eighteen ninety, the Federal League of nineteen fourteen and nineteen fifteen. And even to some extent, I think there should be more discussion about the Pacific Coast League in the 1940s and the 1950s, and a little bit of the American Association, which was going on in that time. But we'll save that all for another discussion. But I did have to give props out to Sean Foreman and all of those involved with Sports Reference. Thank you for sending me this book, which I promise I'm going to go through and provide some insight for. 
Um, Past Ball Show is brought to you by JohnPLA.com, by St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two A's, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Next show is scheduled for Monday, but I do want to also announce I'm going to do, start doing a program on a network called ColorCast, which uh, will be a Monday evening show from 8 to 8.30. I'm excited to come aboard and start to you know, just, just see what it ends up bringing. But we'll obviously keep a lot of insight. We'll do everything we can to continue to interact with the fans like we always do. So we'll be back with you Monday first for the PBS and then for our debut on the ColorCast Network. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side. Chris Bryant was on a Chicago Cubs roster opening day. I have many leather-bound books. My apartment smells of rich mahogany. Why don't you give it all or a majority of it to the team that wins the friggin' World Series? I was going to listen to that, but then I just carried on living my life. I may come out as the biggest... Major League Baseball manager apologist. That'll only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. Because hitters are going out there saying, I'm either going to hit a home run or I'm going to strike out. And if I don't get a pitch that I feel like I could drive out of the park, I'm supposed to be here today. Especially prospect whores and hoarders are going to be a little pissed off at me when I say this. There are only two managers in baseball's Hall of Fame who have losing records. One of them is the iconic Connie Mack, who you could say, in spite of winning five World Series championships as a manager, could be in as much as a pioneer. And what side of the spectrum they're on? Were they pitching? Were they batting? If your favorite team was pitching and a ball got inside and hit a batter, there's no way it could have been on purpose. But if you were a fan of the team that was batting and the ball got inside and hit somebody or went behind somebody's head, absolutely 100% unequivocally that pitcher was throwing at them. They put their tail between their legs and decided they're going to do exactly what they're told. You damn well right better give him a contract extension. You damn well right better make him the manager over the next series of years. 35 years ago, I could have loaned your parents the money for an abortion.